So, so there you go. Now we're broadcasting live on LinkedIn, Twitter, and YouTube. And, um, and people here are starting to filter in. I've already, I already see a comment. Look at that. We have, uh, we've got Kevin here joining us from central Florida already. He's waiting for the show to start. Hey, Kevin, how are you today? And now I see uh, a few more people are starting to filter in. So without further ado, let's, uh, let's roll the tape. I'm David C. Barnett, and you're tuned in to Small Business and Dealmaking, the podcast, YouTube channel, and blog, where I talk about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses while controlling risk. So if you're looking to take control of your future through buying a business one day, or if you already own a business and you're looking to grow or exit, you've come to the right place. I talk about interesting things, I talk to interesting people, and I answer your questions every week right here. So be sure to hit like, and be sure to hit subscribe, and let's get to it. And there we go. T today, everyone, I'm joined from Chicago, Illinois, by Dr. Christopher Croner. And, you know, you study salespeople and their psychology and their personalities and everything. Why don't you give us a little bit of background and tell us how you came to be in this interesting field? Thank you so much, Dave. It's a pleasure to be here today. really appreciate the opportunity. Uh, yes, my background initially was in clinical psychology is where I got my PhD. Uh, after getting my PhD, I started at a firm uh, in the Chicago area that specialized in executive assessment okay. called Whitmer and Associates. They wanted to design something as rigorous as executive assessment for salespeople. And that's when I began doing the research uh, that we talk about now, but gosh, over 20 years ago, <laughs> we've been at this oh, wow. for, for quite some time. And uh, today, Sales Drive has worked with, gosh, over 1,400 companies around the world. We've administered over 100,000 assessments, and we help companies identify uh, candidates with the non-teachable characteristics, the three non-teachable characteristics essential for success as hunter salespeople. That's our focus. Okay. And so I'm sure people can imagine, but but let's get to the meat of why someone would want to have such a tool in place. Uh, do you have any statistics or can you share with us just sort of what the costs or danger might be in hiring the wrong person to be a salesperson? Of course, uh, that's one of the greatest uh, greatest costs that organizations bear is you know bringing a salesperson on board who underperforms, and there's that ranges anywhere between six and seven figures, really just depending on the position. And it's everything from the person's salary to the opportunity cost, benefits, everything that you put in, especially your time as a manager, the amount of mm. time you spent and your stress dealing with that person, dealing with the challenges that they bring on board when they don't necessarily have the passion to succeed for you, those non-teachable elements, if you will. So it, it's interesting because I've I've been a, in sales my whole life, whether in my own business that I was operating or working for other companies, and I've seen you know people come and go and people arrive and be successful and stay for years, and I've seen other people come in and you know in less than a year they're gone, and so I, I, I've seen what can happen and you know all the accounts that those people spoke with that maybe you know could have purchased more or we could have served them better. But that person just wasn't able to realize that. You mentioned three things that can't be taught. What are these characteristics or traits that you're referring to? Of course. So uh, the first is what we call the need for achievement. And when we talk about need for achievement in a salesperson, we're talking about the person who wants to do well simply for the sake of doing well. So that salesperson who's high in need for achievement, we find just naturally wants to set the bar high, if you will. Then they want to jump over that. Then they want to set it even higher again the next time. So they're constantly focused on producing excellence just for the sake of excellence. That's the first piece. The second piece is competitiveness. Mm 
And the competitive okay. salesperson we find really wants to do two things. Number one, they want to be the best in their team. They're always comparing their performance to their peers because they just need to know how they stack up, if you will. But number two, they want to win that prospect or that client over to their point of view. Because to them, uh, psychologically, that sale is kind of like a contest of wills. And then the third piece is optimism. And that's the salesperson's sense of certainty that they will succeed, as well as, of course, their resilience to remain persistent when they face the inevitable rejection that a salesperson just has to deal with. So it's those three characteristics all together, need for achievement, competitiveness, and optimism that uh, psychologically we find creates sort of the perfect storm, if you will. And collectively, we refer to those three characteristics as drive. Wow. Okay. And and so when I'm thinking about sort of a traditional way of, of hiring someone, you know, you think about the interview and, you know, people are talking and asking questions. Tell me about a time when you did this or, or they're looking at the person's, you know, work history and whatnot. Um, you know, is it as simple as just asking people if they share some of these characteristics? It's a little bit more in-depth than that. That's a very good question. Uh, you, hit, you hit the nail on the head, though, when it comes to the right types of questions to ask in the interview. We know the best predictor of future behavior is previous behavior. So it can be tempting sometimes to ask a candidate uh, what-if questions. What would you do if this happened? Or what would you do if that happened? Those sorts of questions uh, can be very effective at knowing whether the person knows the right things to do, but it doesn't tell us anything. They don't tell us anything about whether right. they'll actually engage in those behaviors. So during the interview, to get at these characteristics, we ask the candidate about situations in the past in which they've engaged engaged in behaviors that reflect these characteristics. So for example, when it comes to need for achievement, again, the person who wants to do well for the sake of doing well, one of my favorite questions to ask is, tell me about the greatest goal you've ever accomplished professionally. Mm -hmm. Really have the person describe that goal for you and flesh it out for you. And then you can reflect back to them. You have to be proud of that. How do you intend to top it? Again, the person high in need for achievement has that plan to top it and they're excited about the chance to tell you about it. Or for optimism, tell me about a time when you remain persistent even though everyone else around you gave up. Now tell me about another time, you know, just getting those consistent examples. So you're exactly right. So, so when you, when you study the performance of people, like obviously you, you discovered some of these things that you're looking for through your testing um, mm -hmm. by studying people who were successful and not so successful. Can you, can you tell us about that? Like how, how would you have gone about looking for these things? Cause clearly you didn't know what these things were when you began your research. Exactly. You know, as I mentioned, we started 20 years ago now and started with everything that had been published academically on the topic over the last, what, 85, almost 90 years now. A lot of research has been done academically in terms of what is it that makes a successful salesperson, hundreds of studies. Looking at all of that data, but at the same time, looking at the work that I was doing, doing behavioral interviews with sales candidates, looking at a variety of characteristics, and then thereafter circling back with the sales managers and asking them about who ultimately becomes successful. Combining all of that data together, that's when we identified those non-teachable characteristics that were consistently standing out, all the research that had been done academically, as well as our own work, sitting down with those with those candidates and circling back with, with the managers. Uh, so it, it took a while, but then identifying those characteristics once, once we do, now we have a repeatable process that companies can use and then translating that to an online assessment, something that we can use to consistently identify uh, those individuals in, in a way that's, that's, um, that, that's brief and that's convenient for our clients to use. Okay. And so, you know, when... When I tradition, you know, I think if you asked a lot of people to you, what should a salesman, what is a salesperson like? What do they behave like? Yes. A lot of people might describe sort of an extroverted personality type, someone who's very social, who likes to shake hands and meet a lot of people. Yeah. Um, but in my experience, I mean, I was always very successful in my sales careers. Mm -hmm. And 
I'm not like that at all. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm very much an introvert. But what I always likened my success to was I would try to understand how my product or service might have an impact on the prospect. And if I could see how it would help them, that's what I would you know, be presenting to them. This is the way I can help you. But if I couldn't, I, I would be honest with them and let them know that just because I knew that I didn't want to waste any more time if I couldn't even see how my thing would fit with them. Mm -hmm. but, but what you're saying is that through this testing, it really doesn't have anything to do with some of these outward personality characteristics that people can divine just by meeting someone. Exactly. You know, when it comes to drive, you know, when it comes to that need for achievement, you make a very good point that broadly when we ask anyone what's what leads someone to success in sales they're going to give you the classic characteristics and be like oh the person has a gift of gab or they're very outgoing and certainly relationship skills are important persuasion is important those characteristics are teachable I and mean, we found through the research that those were still important but those are things that we can teach past the age of 21 yes. 22 there's not much we can do to change the person's overall level of drive it's kind of either it's there or it's not. And the research shows, unfortunately, that, that drive is the easiest characteristic for a candidate to fake, quite frankly, in the interview, and the most difficult to accurately rate. But you're exactly right, David. When we talk about we, uh, the person being gregarious, it's very common, for example, the companies will tell us that, you know, they use a shorthand, a heuristic when they're looking for candidates like, oh, I want to find someone who is the captain of the football team or who is the president of the fraternity or sorority. And yes, those things can indicate the person is outgoing. They might even indicate competitiveness, but they don't mm -hmm. necessarily always indicate drive. Sometimes you're better off looking for the person that rather than, you know, the captain of the football team was actually working to put themselves through school quietly. We call that quiet drive. You know, perhaps right. they, were, they were just doing all they could to make sure that they were, again, exercising that need for achievement, you know, work, working extra doing what, what they could to put themselves through school as an example. Um, that's very, very common. You have somebody who's not necessarily an extrovert. Extroversion, introversion, those, those are, again, those, those are reflections of what we might think of as relationship skills. And that, that's all important. But relationship skills are something that we can teach. You can have an introvert who's absolutely very driven. So that's certainly, certainly possible. Uh, we've got more people piling in. We have someone saying good morning from Minnesota, joining us, uh, joining us live. Good to see you today. And um, for those... Uh, you know, who are interested. I mean, the book that we're talking about is we're talking about this book. I'm going to put it up here. Never hire a bad salesperson again, which uh, you've just released the second edition. Is that correct? That is correct. We released the first edition back in what, 2006? I uh, got a great reception and we just introduced the second edition. The, one of the key distinctions of the second edition is there is a download page associated with it with all of the best of what we've gathered over the over the years now uh, in terms of questions you can ask in a phone screen. There's a phone screen guide. There's an interview guide, a scorable interview guide that covers those three non-teachables, which we can talk about more, as well as the other teachable characteristics that we look for. Uh, there's a guide that you can use when you're onboarding salespeople. How do you onboard a salesperson effectively? How do you conduct what we call a mission meeting? And then there's a, a guide that you can use to put together your your ad, your your job listing for a salesperson. How do you write a high drive job listing, if you will? All of that's included in the new edition. Okay. Well, I, I read the book and, and I enjoyed it very much. One of the things I thought was fascinating, and, and you just alluded to it here before I showed the book cover, is that uh, some there are people out there who are very good at faking their way through the interview process to, to demonstrate some of these characteristics when in fact they don't actually have them. Could, could you expand on that a little bit? I thought that was interesting in the book. Absolutely. So uh, candidates 
when they get ready for an interview, again, if you don't stop them, sometimes we'll read books on how to do that effectively. And so, so they'll sit down with you and they'll try to filibuster. They'll try to present themselves as highly driven. They'll say all the right things in the interview, especially if you're not using the right behavioral interview questions. You know, they'll, they'll answer a question in a flippant way. They'll say they're the most energetic driven person in the world. And so, especially when, again, when you have a position to fill that's time sensitive and you're mm -hmm. sitting down with that candidate and they're saying all the right things, it can feel to you in the moment, like, finally, you know, the cavalry must be here. But then again, six months, you know, a year down the road, you're left asking, wait a minute, what happened to the person whom I interviewed? Uh, in some cases, that may be the best sale that you ever really see out of them because they present themselves so well in, in that discussion. They know the right things to say, to, to, to look driven. When you instead, though, take the time to use an assessment up front. And then when you sit down with that candidate, taking the time to have your questions written out, focus on those behavioral interview questions, specifically dig into things the candidate has done in the past that reflect the characteristics that we would like for them to show for us, walking them, having them walk through their resume with you, asking the right questions as they review their resume can help to indicate this. So it's all about having a game plan. When you sit down with a consistent game plan for yourself to go after these characteristics, you will be far and above anyone who sits down with a candidate and just wings it. Because when you think about it, people right. don't necessarily have interview training courses. When you sit down with a candidate and you've never interviewed somebody before, what are you supposed to do? Especially a company that's hiring their very first salesperson. They don't know. Yeah. They sit down and go, okay, what, what leads somebody to success in sales? Well, again, they're a likable person. Uh, they're extroverted and they could sell me this pencil. So I'm going to sit down with this person and I'm going to see whether I'm, whether I'm going to like them. I'm going to use my gut, my gut instinct, if you will. And gut instinct can be important to determine things like cultural fit, but it won't necessarily tell us whether the person's going to be successful for us as a salesperson. So it's all about having a consistent game plan. What is there a difference between the right kind of salesperson to work for a large organization versus perhaps a small or medium sized business? Ah, very good question. So uh, when you're looking at a large company, a company that has, say, more time to train someone, they have more resources to do that. They have more brand recognition. They might not always necessarily uh, need, especially if they don't have, if the position is more of a, say, of a farmer role where they're dealing with existing accounts, the person might not necessarily need to be as high on drive uh, to succeed in that more of that farmer role. Uh, if you look at the drive scale that we have on our assessment from one to five, they might be able to take a three, for example, on drive. The position maybe just, just involves a little bit of interaction with, uh, with, with new prospects. Whereas if you're looking at a smaller company, a smaller business, uh, who's bringing on new, new salespeople, oftentimes that smaller business, they want somebody who's going to be up, up and running, hit the ground running very, very quickly. And so they'll ask us, you know, what should we look for? And that person who's going to be, you know, hitting the ground fast is going to be up and running because we don't have the time to train them, Dr. Corner. What should we find? Well, again, in that case, we'll recommend really three things. Number one, the person who's had at least two to three years of relevant previous experience. So they've had sales yeah. 101. Two, at a similarly sized company. So they've dealt with the challenges inherent when they don't necessarily have all those advantages of all that brand recognition and collateral material. And number three, a high score on drive, a four or a five, a green, if you will. So again, it can be tempting when we see someone who comes in with all this experience at a very large company thinking, okay, surely they've had success. Surely they must've had world-class sales training. Surely they'll bring that same degree of success to bear for us. But the key question is always, what led to that person's success, David? Was it always their own effort or was it really the fact that the brand recognition and collateral material were carrying the day, if you will? So in that case, that's why we always recommend looking for the person that has that experience at the smaller company, as well as the drive and the passion to execute on that knowledge. And, and so and I'm also, so I, I, love, I love your answer because, you know, in my experience with the smaller organization, there's a far greater likelihood that that sales manager simply doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. That you're, you're talking about an owner who's dealing with operations and trying to manage all the things. And then typically they're the one doing the sales. And then they realize, I can't do this anymore. 
I need to step out of that role. And, and it's a date, it's a, it's a scary one for owners to step out of when they're growing a small business mm-hmm. um, because that's the bread and butter role, right? That's mm-hmm. what, that's what brings in the bacon, right? right? And you, you hand that off to someone else because you literally don't have time to be taking care of it anymore. That person really has to be able to, to take care of their own affairs and, and, and be self-managing. Yep. In many cases, yes. Particularly, you have to look at the type of product that you're selling. There are some cases, for example, where a company is selling a product, say, with a long sales cycle or a product that's relatively new, maybe that doesn't have a, you know, a lot of competitors. In that case, what you really need is someone whom you consider to be an evangelist. Right. Someone who has that high optimism for whom even on their darkest day, they just know they're going to be successful. Therefore, looking for someone who has some experience dealing with products like that in the past, using a resource like LinkedIn, for example, to find people with, with that back, background and then, of course, assess them and interview them, et cetera, to determine do they have the passion to continue to execute. And that way can be a much more effective way than kind of relying on instinct or putting an ad on a, on a broader platform uh, and then looking at candidates who come in and thinking, OK, you know, this person has had success at this large company. Let's bring them into ours and see if they do well. Oftentimes, if that person has been able to swim when they've had all that brand recognition to help them out, they will sink when they no longer have all of those advantages. Yeah. Yeah. I can see, I, you know, I have seen that before actually firsthand. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, So I I think, you know, I have had to do, you know, several of these personality style tests online, you know, when I was going through a hiring process before. Mm -hmm. And so can you describe what it's like for candidates when you're working to help someone hire someone? Uh, What, what are the stages? When do they do, the assessment that you've put together, is it before that first interview or is it after they've passed some sort of initial screening? Good question. It really kind of depends on the size of the company. We work with companies of all sizes, from companies hiring their first salesperson all the way to companies hiring hundreds of salespeople per year. If a company is hiring a larger group of salespeople, say in the hundreds, they usually move the assessment toward the beginning of the process, as you can imagine, because they need to kind of uh, use an effective tool up front to make sure that the individuals whom they're interviewing are you know, the highest quality that they can. Uh, however, if a company is a little bit smaller and they're hiring, say, maybe two or three salespeople per year, what they will often do is something, as you described, starting out with, say, a resume review, which yep. we can discuss in little bit detail as well then moving on to a phone screen and then deciding whether to use the assessment then at that point dave they have three great pieces of data to decide okay number one did they bring the person into the interview at all and number two if they do how do they structure the interview to make the best use of their their time so that's typically you know the, the structure that companies will use if they're hiring say two to three salespeople. And so, and and a company that is small like that typically probably doesn't all doesn't have like an HR professional on staff either, probably right. Mm-hmm. And so, does your firm kind of offer that sort of coaching and guidance component as well to to give people uh, some instruction as to how to make this all come together more successfully? Yes, we do. And again, we we don't uh, conduct those steps for companies, but we, give, we do give them guidance in terms of you yeah. know here are the questions you can ask, say in a phone screen. That's all in our book. Okay. So here are the things to look for in a resume specifically or a LinkedIn profile. Happy to discuss those today. Yeah. Um, we, we do give them step by step by step in terms of what to do, you know, in terms of making sure that the candidates whom they assess are the highest quality possible and then use how to combine that data. Always happy to do a call with the company after they've used an assessment to walk them through the candidate's results, give them my interpretation of how that person performed, as well as my recommendation for how to proceed with them thereafter in the interview process. As I mentioned, we work with over 1,400 companies around the world, and it's always my pleasure to be of service and share as much as I can. And so let's talk about that resume screening then. What mm-hmm. what are the things that people should be looking for? Of course. So uh, in terms of looking for candidates that are going to be likely to do well, for example, on an assessment of drive, uh, we've had some clients where almost every single candidate they assess scores high in drive. And I've asked them, what do you look for in terms of, say, a resume or a LinkedIn profile that consistently predicts 
a high score. And they've really said, well, three different three different things that they tend to look for. Number one, they look for the person that is more of a passive candidate than an active candidate. Because as you can imagine, if someone's been actively out there looking for a while in the world in the world of sales, there can be a good reason for it. So they tend to look oh, for Oh, yes. Candidate. Okay. Uh, number two, they look for the person who's not a job hopper, so they have some longevity in the positions they've held. Of course, after school, you know, two to three positions, they might uh, the person might need a little bit of time to get their ship legs, if you will. But after that, we look for a little bit of time, at least two to three years, uh, at, at the various positions that the person has held. And then uh, after the third thing we encourage them to look for is uh, the person who's able to provide some sort of metrics to show that they have been successful previously. They find those three things all together. Although it's not a perfect correlation, they do tend to predict a higher overall drive score. Okay. And and now what appears on a resume and what appears on a LinkedIn profile is all created by the candidate. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, getting back to the, the people who try to fake their way through an interview, um, do you, uh, do you find that people need to have those, those resumes and LinkedIn profiles investigated to some degree, just to make sure that they're accurate? Uh, well, the investigation is, of course, done by the interviewer. Uh, so right. we, always, we always encourage companies, again, we, you only have the information you have, of course, with a resume or a LinkedIn profile, but it's a good place to start. It's one place to start. We can say, okay, there, there's enough here to indicate, okay, let's let's do a phone call let's, or let's do a Zoom call and speak with that individual and talk with them a little bit about uh, their, their background. And uh, in reviewing the person's resume, in reviewing their background, this way we learn a little bit about, about them from the candidate directly. So when reviewing a candidate's resume, I always encourage our clients to really ask three specific questions. So go through the person's resume with them, have them walk you through. And for each position they've held, ask the candidate to answer three questions. Number one, give me the basic job description. What did you do in that role? Mm -hmm. Number two, if you were on a sales team, where did you rank on the team? Of course, the competitive person will know exactly where they ranked. Right. And number three, what got you to move on to the next position? And of course, I'm sure you've heard occasionally when you've asked that question, David, you know, over, over the years, what can you move on to the next position? Candidates will occasionally have what you might consider to be somewhat guarded answers. Things like, oh, there were some misunderstandings with my supervisor. There are some differences of opinion concerning my salary, you know, things like that. Uh, if we do find that candidates are providing those guarded answers, I encourage our clients to use what we call the magic wand question. Okay, if we had a magic wand and we could change three things about that job, so you would have never wanted to leave what would those three things be? Mm. That's when you start to get a kernel of the truth because what you're doing now is you're asking a very difficult question in a very positive way. And so right. the candidate will say, gosh, let me see what three things would I change? Well, let me see. Um, I would have gotten paid more, I guess. Uh, my assistant wouldn't have quit. And then maybe I wouldn't have yelled at the sales manager. And they give you something you can start to dig in on. And then at that point, of course, the key is to find whether or not we can find other examples of that behavior occurring in the past as well. Because the more consistently we find examples of a behavior occurring in the past, the more reliably we can predict it will emerge for us going forward. Oh, fascinating. Okay. So if, you know, if we hire someone, and it turns out that we hired the wrong person. We've already talked about you know, the opportunity costs and the lost salaries and all that kind of stuff. What are some of the earliest signs that we might be able to notice in someone's behavior or performance to let us know that we may have made a mistake? Well, one of the quickest, one of the quickest ways to identify a salesperson that's, again, not not going to perform up to expectations is a dramatic is a dramatic shift, if you will, a dramatic, dramatic difference between what they said they were going to do in the interview and their performance thereafter. Of course, this will typically occur, occur if a company hasn't been using the techniques that we've been describing in the interview, where they've let the candidate kind of uh, control things and got a good sense of whether or not they have a gut instinct whether the person's going to do well. The person comes on board and for some reason, for example, during the um, onboarding process, you know, you may have your expectation when the person is going to start producing and they just don't. 
and you're left asking, well, wait a minute, maybe we did, we did something wrong. Maybe we didn't do enough. And then time continues to go by and they're just not performing well. And then you may hear from clients whom that person has been, uh, whom that person has connected with or to whom you've introduced them uh, who are not as, are, are not as happy with, with that person. You know, they may express that this person is a little bit frustrating for them to deal with. Those are kind of the early signs. And then as time goes on, of course, looking at the, the revenue that, that, that's coming in, looking at their, their just right. basic sales performance day to day, uh, you're going to start to see that problem metastasize over time. So it's about nipping the problem in the bud uh, as, as soon as you can, identifying someone who's not going to do well on the one. Really, you're doing a service to, to them as well as to the company, because if we put a person in a role, think about somebody who's going to be a successful hunter. Is somebody who, that's the individual who's going to go out, knock on a door, whether it's in person over the phone, sometimes get that door slammed in their face, then knock on the next door with that much more certainty and passion and conviction, David. And that's a very special person that we're talking about. So it's all about making sure that that match is right, not only for the company, but also for the person and identifying that as soon as we can. Because if we're putting a person in a hunter role and they don't have those non-teachable traits that are essential for that role, they're going to be miserable and you can be sure the company is going to be miserable. In your research, you must have um, studied or analyzed data from a lot of these salespeople who were applying for, for new jobs and, and the data about why they left their previous role. Are you able to share with me some of the top reasons why a good salesperson decides to leave? Or is that something that came up in your research? Good question. We didn't do a formal study on it, but I can tell you in consulting with our clients and uh, discussing these processes, we do get common answers. Uh, a salesperson will often say, well, there were, again, they'll often say there were some some, some changes in structure at the company. There were, there were some um, changes in structure where, whereby they needed to let several people go and they decided to let, let this person go as part of that, that group. Or there were some changes to the person's compensation that they didn't expect. Or there was an issue with a relationship with a manager, as I mentioned, that the manager didn't, uh, they felt the person was not forthright with them in terms of, in terms of um, uh, meet, meeting their expectations, meeting the expectations they made during the hiring process. So that can certainly be the case as well. Uh, you, could, you can also have a situation where the person's legitimately a high performer and they're just frustrated. Maybe they're not a good match with the environment. They're at a company that doesn't support, doesn't give them the... Um, the support they need. For example, you might have a salesperson who's working at a manufacturing company and uh, the, uh, the, the the office isn't able to give them materials as fast as, as they need. Uh, mm. for their so there are some reasons legitimate, some that we have a little bit more of a question about. It's all about digging into those superficial answers to find the truth in each case. And you can do that very, very simply by keeping the right demeanor and by making sure that you're asking the candidate to give you very, very specific examples. Do, do you find that there's much of a variation in what sort of rewards or recognition that these high drive salespeople are looking for? Is it is it very much about money or, or are there other things that kind of uh, uh, light them up as well? Very good question. Well, you know, when it comes to looking for a salesperson who's motivated by money, that's one of the issues companies will sometimes bring when they first meet us. They'll say, you know, we're looking for somebody who's motivated by money. They'll even say they want somebody who um, has, say, a mortgage or a couple of car payments or kids in school, all these external pressures that are motivating them. And then during that same discussion, it's almost like they want to find someone who's indentured themselves so they can exploit them a little bit, you know? You know, you're right. You're right. What's interesting, what's interesting though, is then that during that same discussion, they'll say, you know, we can't understand it, Dr. Crenner. We get people who get up to a certain level of production and then they just level off. We call these folks the flatliners in our, in our book. And mm. they don't understand why that is. And when they say they're looking for somebody who's motivated by external pressures or motivated by money, we find that the person who's motivated by money, money alone, typically will get up to a certain level of production and they will then achieve the lifestyle that they're after. Or if they have external pressures, they'll get up to a certain level of production. They'll pay their bills and, and then they don't see any need to work any harder. Yeah. 
Exactly. And now they know what they need to phone in quarter after quarter just to maintain. Whereas the person motivated by need for achievement, for example, will continue to excel. They'll continue to produce. Money's still important to them to be sure, but they look at money the same way that say a great athlete looks at points on the scoreboard. It's how they show how well they've done rather than their goal in and of itself, if that makes sense. So it's still important to them, but also important to a person with high need for achievement is that recognition. They need to know that they've done well. The recognition in front of the group. Think of the kid in school that just has to get an A. Or as, as a kid putting that piece of paper up in the refrigerator. That person high need for achievement is absolutely turned on by that. And if we look at the three elements of drive, we'll occasionally get the question, well, is there one of the three need for achievement, competitiveness, or optimism? That's most important. And we find that need for achievement is the one. It's the differentiator. Most companies don't think about it. You don't think about the kid who has to get an A when you're bringing somebody on board as a salesperson. But we find, interestingly, the research shows need for achievement is important not only for salespeople, but also for entrepreneurs. People have to kind of get up every morning and make it happen, and there's nobody standing over them watching them. So that's that characteristic where the person not only needs money, but they need money to show how well they've done rather than their goal in and of itself. But they also like that recognition. It's it's funny that you draw the the connection between the two, because I, I, I get I field a lot of questions from people who are saying, you know, I, I think I want to get into business. I think I want to be a business owner, but I'm really not sure. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I'll say to them is get into sales. Mm-hmm. because it's it's almost like you have this miniature business within the confines of whatever the organization is with all these other things taken care of and provided mm-hmm. but you're you're left to fend for yourself and go out and find you know to, you eat what you kill you have to go find something to kill in that role and and if if you're very turned off by that if you don't like having to take responsibility for what you're going to deliver every day mm-hmm. then that, in my mind, may mean that you may not be that interested in the life of being an entrepreneur. Very, very true. Very, very true. Yeah, yeah that, that that life is challenging. You know, when you don't necessarily have all those advantages of having a clear, clear path, when you have to figure things out for yourself, that's very, very challenging. And when you get somebody who has that mentality, you know, that especially that need for achievement and moving that person into a sales role, you're much more likely to have somebody who's going to be successful than someone who, again, says the right things in the interview, says they're motivated by money just says that they have all, all this passion, but they don't necessarily have it underneath the surface. So it's all about identifying you know, underneath the surface, do they have it or not? You know, a, a particular story just came to mind when you're, uh, that your story about flatliners reminded me of. I, I remember it was when, in one of my very first sales roles out of university. I was working for the Yellow Pages. This was back in the 90s. So I was calling on small businesses and selling them advertisements and, and learning about their business and how they made money and trying to trying to show them how I could help them with that. And I remember one of the older guys I was a big golfer and um, about the mid to end of August, his golfing time just increased dramatically. Mm-hmm. And um, I always used to say to him, like, like, why are you slacked off like this? And, and his answer was always that he knew that he had put through enough to hit his number for the year. Mm-hmm. And, then this, and then this is what he would say. He would say, I just don't get that excited about working so hard for 60 cent dollars. And so what he was referring to was the tax mm-hmm. bracket he was hitting. Sure. Right. Where, where all of a sudden, you know, the incentive for him to deliver for the company was, was being limited by the, the new tax bill that he was going to have to pay on every other dollar he earned beyond that. And, and I, it made me think, you know, and I was young at the time, I wasn't even thinking about my taxes. I was being driven by these arbitrary dollar figures I would come up with. Like, sure. oh, I hit 120 that year. And I want to hit 130 this. Like, I just wanted to keep pushing myself. But but that made me think, you know, how many other people are there in the economy who take their foot off the gas 
because they hit some income tax rate. Like mm -hmm. th this must have a huge dampening effect across the board for everyone. Yeah. You know, it, 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 people respond to incentives. Everybody does right. with high drive, low drive, everybody does. So uh, just in, in, you know, another way of, of explaining that concept is if you look at a company that says we're not going to we're, we're not going to give people uh, unlimited op opportunity to, to earn. Some companies will give someone a salary and they don't give them the opportunity to earn, say, unlimited commissions. And that will attract people that just want, again, want to kind of coast at a certain yeah. level. Whereas the person high in need for achievement, as long as they have a decent fi financial underpinning, they want to take the opportunity to earn unlimited commissions because they can put unlimited points in the scoreboard. And if you were to ask, say, Michael Jordan, one of the greatest uh, basketball players of all time, you know, he's, he's going out on, onto the court. Uh, if you were going to ask him, what, what does he really want to do? What's his main goal? He wouldn't say score a lot of points. He'd say, I want to be the best of all time. Great. But at the same time, if you went out there and you said, OK, anything you put on the scoreboard be beyond, say, 12 points or anything you score beyond 12 points, we're not going to put on the board. We're not going to do it. We're not going to put it up there. He's not going to want to do that. Because if you don't give the person the opportunity to show that they've been successful, they feel like they're going to be stifled. You're absolutely right. Uh, why would they? Because uh, even if the person is, is high in driving, it's really it's, it's it's sad because you can you can get people that yeah. perform so much higher if they didn't have these arbitrary restrictions. So I agree with you. Yeah. Um, Nathan's joining us from uh, from Knoxville, Tennessee, says that uh, we've got some great points. It's great to see you here, Nathan. Um, I, I'm going to take a moment. I'm just going to tell everyone about uh, today's video sponsor uh, because we do have a video sponsor today. Um, today's video is sponsored by Mark Willis over at Lake Growth Financial. And Mark and I did a recording a few weeks ago where we explained the bank on yourself style whole life policy as an investment. And this is a, a product that is guaranteed to always go up in value. It's an asset that builds equity and gives you access to liquidity whenever you need it without having to qualify for credit. And I know that I've told this story before for people that listen to the channel, but someone tried to get me into this like over 20 years ago and they didn't do a very good job of explaining it. And now that I understand this program, I wish I had, because if I had engaged in this 20 years ago, today I would be able to make a phone call and access up to half a million dollars whenever I wanted it. And so if you're in business for the long term, if you have a good income, you want to get into business one day, or if you own a business, you have excess cash, and you're looking for a way to take better control of your cash to create a liquidity tool, head over to newbankingsolution.com. You can watch the, the explainer video that I did with Mark that explains the whole topic. And I've also got linked there on the bottom of the page, four different episodes of the program that Mark came over and spoke to me on, which talk about even deeper fundamental aspects of this program. So it's something that, uh, if, that I would encourage people to check out. It's something I do myself. And with that, oh, now I have to hide it. There you go. Chris is back. Hi, Chris. Thanks for hey. thanks for sitting through the commercial. Um, Mark is a great sponsor for the for the channel. We're glad to have him. Um, and for anyone else out there, uh, please submit your comments because Chris is going to answer your questions here for the next little while. Um, we, we have one viewer who says, "I'm I'm probably at the same great point right now. I rewind the heck out of these episodes." Yeah, there, there's there's a lot of great content that we share whenever I have a guest come on, that's for sure. Um, so in the world of sales and hiring salespeople, is there some kind of dynamic or fundamental thing that happens between salespeople on a team that should be a, a, an important component we consider when hiring? 
Oh, very good question. So yes. And I, I, got, I, I scratched off all the bad questions off my list. <laughs> I can tell. I really appreciate it. Um, uh, in terms of any given team, you're going to have natural dynamics occurring between people. And you have people who, who might be, for example, at different uh, at different levels of the, our three elements of drive, need for achievement, competitiveness, and optimism. And they might relate to each other very differently. So for example, you might have somebody who's say a uh, high need for achievement, they're very competitive, but they're lower on optimism. They might be the sort of individual whom you might consider to be a realist, if you will. They like to think about what might go wrong in a situation going forward and really do their best to prepare for it. Uh, if you have someone on, on your team like that, you might team them up with the person for whom optimism is their, their strongest trait. They think things are going to go well. They have a positive view of things. Sometimes those folks can balance each other out psychologically. Or on the other hand, you might have a person who's very high drive and you could team them up uh, with somebody who might not be as high in drive, but perhaps is a great customer service person. Uh, it could be a great wing person for that high drive person. So looking at the person's natural personality and their, their proclivities, if you will, and teaming people up in that way can be very effective because that way each person is exercising their, their strengths and they're doing so in a way that kind of balances each other out. I, I've worked on sales teams before that have had people who were very team oriented, who wanted to spend a lot of time, you know, talking with other team members and, and, you know, sharing with other team members. And I've also been on sales teams where I had a lot of those sort of rugged individualist type characters who, who weren't really um, talking or communicating much with the other people. Is, mm -hmm. is there any correlation or, or anything worth discussing about that kind of dynamic? One ah, kind of yeah, it kind of depends. Yeah, it depends on the company and on the company culture. You know, you have some companies that have a culture of more rugged individualism where uh, someone with that with that tendency will will tend to do well. In that case, there's not necessarily going to be as much friction because everyone kind of operates uh, in that way and comes together, of course, when they have to. Other companies will have more of a camaraderie, if you if you will, and people work work together as an, a team. And that's, that's part of, you know, it's a, it's a family type of an environment, as, as companies will describe it, where there's a really good team environment. Uh, in that case, then bringing people on board that have that more of that ability to work well with others or enjoy working with others is most important. So that really gets to the idea of culture and thinking about what really leads someone ultimately to success in sales uh, is a variety of what you can think of as uh, the sales ecosystem, if you will. So there's the person's natural personality that we've been talking about. It's almost like the, the success of an athlete. There's the person's natural personality, but there's also fit with the company culture, fit with the management style, fit with the compensation plan. Right. All those things come together. In this case, when we look at culture, yes, the person does need to be a good fit with the company culture. With personality, as we've been discussing, we're kind of looking at raw athletic ability, if you will. How fast can they run? How high can they jump? So we always want to look at the company culture and is the person a good match for the culture? That's where uh, that, you know, that aspect of gut instinct can come into play, certainly during hiring. Do you, do you like this person? Are they are they a good match for you and for the company, for you as the manager and for others at the company when you do those activities during hiring, like doing a ride along or things of that nature? How, how are they meshing with the group? So you can go about assessing fit with the company culture in those specific sorts of ways as you're bringing the person on board and as you're hiring them, most importantly. Okay. So, I mean, you've explained that your your company has this uh, assessment tool that, mm -hmm. that sales prospective salespeople would complete online and the results would go to the hiring person. What does it look like for people that are that want to work with you? Do they do they pay for every time a person does the assessment or is there a certain package? Like how how does your service work? Of course. So companies will either purchase assessments individually uh, or they will purchase a package of assessments through a subscription, if you will. OK, so they can buy them one on one or they can buy a subscription. Again, subscriptions are typically for companies that hire you know, a little bit more in terms of volume. Uh, but then it's about using the assessment in an effective way and making sure that, again, the, the candidates who are who are being assessed are the ones who have made it through, as we've discussed, kind of that, that phone screen process, the um, 
the, the resume review for the ones that are just using them one at a time. And then for the interpretation of the assessments, we always work with them one-on-one. -on -one. Okay. And, and so you have clients that are as small as just hiring one person? Yes, yes, we do. Yes, we do. And again, when they're hiring that first person, that person's critical. You know, it, that, that, that first person, you're putting all your hopes and dreams in that individual. And will they, they do well for you? That's, a, that's the most important question you can ask. So yes, we, we do get calls from companies that are hiring their first person, always happy to work with them. And then we work with, as I mentioned, very, very large companies that want to test hundreds of people. And we certainly work with them too. Usually one phone call with me is sufficient uh, to interpret the results of the assessment. That's the consistent feedback that we get, David, is that the assessment itself uh, it's very easy to interpret. You know, some of the reports for, for many of the assessments that are available will go on as uh, some companies describe page after page without coming to any logical conclusion. In this case, in our case, with the drive test, they get scores of green, yellow, red. So it's very easy to interpret. And and so, I mean, you, you've already discussed how some people might, you know, sort of fake their way through an interview. How How, when you design one of these tools, do you prevent someone from being able to game the system in, in the same way? Is it asking the same things in different iterations to try to catch, you know, someone in a, in a conflict or how, do, how does that work? In some ways, yes. Uh, and that's one of the challenges that many assessments will have many great assessments out there. But in many cases, they can tend to be just a little bit too easy, as you can probably imagine, for sales candidates in particular to size up the test figure out what it's really looking for, and then yes, fake their way through it. So if a question says something like, you know, I consider myself uh, very persuasive, true or false? Well, again, if that salesperson wants that job, they're probably gonna lean toward true. So we use a question format that's designed to eliminate faking called forced choice. Okay. So for each question on the drive test, the person gets a series of three statements, all of which are worded very positively. So a question, for example, may say something like, I consider myself a leader, I have great relationship skills, I'm very organized. Okay, now which of these is most like you and which one is least like you? Oh, so interesting. I've, I've never done a test like that before. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. Yes, because of course that forces the candidate to make some very difficult distinctions, but then it gives us a much better sense of their real priorities. And as they're working their way through the assessment, we are also monitoring their consistency as they respond to the questions. Because as you can imagine, if the person does try to fake the test, it's going to be very difficult for them to remember consistently what they ranked most and least across the entire assessment. So again, it's designed to be very robust for you in that regard. It's, it's, geez, you know, you should have sent me the test beforehand. We could have reviewed the analysis uh, here with everyone <laughs> live. It would have been would have been a lot of fun. Uh, we've got a, a comment here from Nathan who says, I've Notice that in a sales role, there is no benefit for other coworkers to help the new hires because it takes time away from prospecting. That, that's interesting. I'll, I'll get your feedback and I'll give you I'll give you what I think about this. Yeah, you know, in some cases that can be a challenge. You know, when you're bringing someone on board, you want them to have the advantage of being able to to have a mentor in some cases. So again, if you if you can, to the extent that you can, giving the person a mentor that doesn't feel like it's a conflict, uh, whether that's the sales manager, whether that's another salesperson, or structuring things so that it's not a con conflict, that's generally what I would recommend to kind of alleviate some of that. Because if it is set up as a as an adversarial environment where everyone's on their own, if you will, as we as we discussed, you're going to run into that that type of an issue. So. Yeah. Uh, you know, in, in one of the roles that I did, um, and this was when I was working for American Express, um, we had territories. I was in I was in um, the corporate liquidity division. We were doing uh, the business card programs, but also uh, these revolving credit programs to help extend days payable outstanding for, for companies. And uh, we were matched together in teams, but we were matched with people that were very distant from us. So I was matched with a fellow up in Ontario. And once when uh, when we had meetings, 
um, I went with him and just spent a day with him and we went prospecting in his territory. And, um, you know, I, I felt good to be able to help him out. Uh, you know, my, my manager knew that I was successful and wanted me to help, you know, train the new person kind of thing. I, I don't know. I, I didn't see it like, like I was in any kind of conflict or, or really losing out in any way. Uh, for helping that other person. I would imagine that if you have a bunch of people that are all falling over each other, fighting over the same accounts, it might be a very sim- different kind of culture within the sales organization. Mm, very, very true. Um, and again, making sure the person's, that there, there's a reward of some kind, of course, uh, for, for, for mentoring that individual can certainly help too. Because again, the person who is high in need for achievement, they always want their recognition. So if you can find a way to reward them, just in, even in, in an informal way, that can be effective as well. It's true. All right. So, uh, Chris, this has been a, a great conversation. I know that uh, that people are going to enjoy it and the people who are watching the replay afterwards are going to get a lot of this as well. Where can people learn more? I mean, I have got the uh, the book is called Never Hire a Bad Salesperson Again. I've put this into my Amazon bookstore and, and that'll be down in the notes below for anyone who wants to, to find the book. But uh, where can people reach out online if they want to learn more about you or maybe talk with you about employing this tool to help them hire the better salesperson? Of course, you can go to salesdrive.info, salesdrive.info. And there, for any of our listeners that are hiring salespeople, they can request a complimentary assessment. Happy to give them a complimentary assessment and, again, discuss the results with them if they would like. Awesome. Well, this has been a really great conversation. I want to thank you very much for joining me today. And I want to thank all the viewers who are out there watching and people who submitted questions. And you're welcome. Um, you're welcome. Thank says, you so much. It was a pleasure to be here. Oh, it was great. And, and Nathan says thanks to the both of us as well. And uh, awesome. So let me head over here. And uh, as I produce the show on the fly and, uh, and we'll say see you, by, see you later to everyone. We'll talk to you next time. So how can you learn more about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses? Easy. Head over to my blog site at davidcbarnett.com. You'll find hundreds of articles and videos all for free. You'll find links to my books and online courses, and you can sign up for my email list and get emails covering topics that interest you and be notified of new videos. This episode of Small Business and Deal Making is brought to you by smbpodcastnetwork.com. The network is a collection of podcasts and shows from around the internet, which focus on bringing you interviews with amazing guests who share actionable advice, ideas, and information for small and medium-sized business owners and entrepreneurs. Visit www.smbpodcastnetwork.com to find more great shows and easily subscribe to be notified of new episodes. It's a great way to discover quality content. And if you've discovered us today via the network, then I hope you're enjoying the show and will consider subscribing directly so you never miss any one of our great episodes.